You're listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Now for political insight and strategy, let's get started with your hosts. Hi, this is Caitlin Martin. I'm Towner French. This is Patrick Martin. This is Mark Alderman. This is Howard Schweitzer. Good morning, everyone, and welcome to our Beltway Briefing this week. Uh, Howard Schweitzer, we, we gave him the week off. He is uh, out today down in New Orleans with family, so uh, I'm taking over the mic for the day. This is Caitlin Martin. With us today, we've got a, a smaller crew. We've got Mark Alderman, Towner French, and Tristan Bro. Thanks for joining me, guys. Good morning. Good morning. Good morning. Thanks, Caitlin. It was a uh, busy, busy week in Washington with a lot going on. We had um, the beginning of the uh, Supreme Court nominations hearings before the Senate Judiciary Committee for the historic pick of Katanji Brown-Jackson. Um, I'm sure many of us spent several hours pouring over the coverage and the uh, ensuing back and forth there. Um, so big, big week in the Senate. The House was out this week. House Republicans were down in Florida in Ponte Vedra holding their annual policy retreat. A lot less fireworks this year than last year. A lot less drama coming out of the uh, reports from down there. We'll we'll get to that today. Uh, And also this week, President Biden went to Brussels, had a big meeting with NATO, announced some new Russian sanctions. We're now facing one month into this horrible war and invasion of Ukraine. And so a, a lot to talk about today. No, no shortage of, of things to discuss. So with that, Mark, why don't we jump in? Let's let I've, I'm kicking it to you first. How are we feeling about uh, the way the Supreme Court confirmation hearings went this week and, and how, how things are going? Yeah, thank you. And not good about the process that we have uh, descended into for confirming Supreme Court justices, feeling great, 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 great about the nominee. She is just simply an amazing, extraordinary woman, and I I couldn't be more proud as uh, an addicted Democrat of the president's nomination and of uh, Judge Ketanji Brown. But but the process has deteriorated. Towner and I always like to do a little historical uh, context. Ever since Robert Bork did not get confirmed by actually sitting at the hearing and talking about his conservative uh, and then some beliefs, These hearings have become increasingly superficial, increasingly theatrical, increasingly superficial. And I'm going to be Howard for just one minute only and do both sides. You know, we did it to Amy Coney Barrett talking about the Affordable Care Act on and on and on when the case was about her religion. Yeah, it's both sides, but it's a charade and it's really unfortunate because these are the these are nine of the 10 most important people in the United States of America. And and it is not a serious process any longer, which which I regret. I agree. 
I agree. I mean, it's it, it ever he marks exactly right. Ever since Bork, it's become a political process. We put we've as a nation, both parties, everybody included, we've managed to to ruin the Supreme Court. Now, I mean, there have been times in the history of the United States when the Supreme Court has been equally ruined, but uh, but it still uh, had a reverence which was a little bit different. And uh, and even though they're a co-equal branch, maybe they should be dragged down in the mud with the other two branches, but. Uh, um, but at this point, we are in a situation where uh, I and I think I said this a couple of weeks ago, I don't see any modern Supreme Court justice from either party getting more than like 55 to 60 votes maximum. I mean, it, you could argue about uh, removing the filibuster for uh, for um, district court, circuit court judges, appeals court judges. You could argue about removing the filibuster for um, for nominees uh, to the president's cabinet. Uh, but quite frankly, probably removal of the filibuster for Supreme Court judges was one of the most necessary things that has to happen. Uh, or else we might actually have a Supreme Court right now that probably had like two or three seats filled uh, if we hadn't removed the filibuster for the Supreme Court, because I don't know anybody's getting 60. I don't know if, you know, it doesn't matter who it is. I don't think they're getting 60, to be honest with you. And so, uh, so you know, it's just a, an unfortunate part of the process. But the president's nominees are routinely getting through. We're not seeing a Bork type situation. We're not seeing a situation that George W. Bush had, where he had to pull a couple nominees. Um, we haven't seen that in in 15 to 20 years now. So at the very least, the nominees are getting through with the 50 vote threshold. But but Mark's exactly right. It's a it's a clown show. Tristan, what are your thoughts? This week was historic. This week was impactful for so many uh, across this country. You know, I think the interesting part is that Republicans have not learned anything as it relates to what happened to the last two Supreme Court nominations. Democrats took a lot of flack for the way they treated the last two Supreme Court nominees. You know, and I, in, in my circles, have said the same thing. You know, we got what was coming to us. The House, we barely won. The Senate, we barely have because of all the back and forth and the political games that were played, I think Republicans are going to fall to that same sword as it relates to how they vote on the first African-American woman to be appointed to the Supreme Court. Now, with that being said, her record is fair game. Um, I think that you should challenge it. You should ask the difficult questions. Um, but there were times in there um, that I think just went a little too far. And I think it was um, a moment for us as a country. We needed a moment to show that we're united. You know, we can disagree politically, but we don't have to go in the mud. And I think the problem is Republicans said in the outset, we're not going to be the same way. And then they turned around and kind of was the same way. And so for me, I think it, it's it's going to it's going to pay a price. Um, I am I appreciate the fact that my Supreme my next associate justice of the Supreme Court knows the five freedoms of the First Amendment. Um, I'm appreciative that she actually understands what judicial temperament means. Um, I can appreciate that she's actually studied the law and has actually heard cases um, and she's eminently qualified. And so I think, you know, in this country, we have taken things to the gutter too far and we expected this to happen. But at the end of the day, she's going to get confirmed. 
And the test of the election is going to be who's going to vote for her and their justification for not voting for her is going to be very, very important. And I think the American public is going to see that. And they've seen it on full force today. Yeah, I mean, it's fitting that Patrick Martin isn't on because, you know, three weeks ago, he was all sunshine and flowers about how this was like going to be a completely non-controversial Supreme Court nomination. Just doesn't happen. Just doesn't happen anymore. And Tristan, I agree with you that I wish Republicans would have learned those lessons. But I also think nobody's losing elections over objecting to the other party's Supreme Court nominees at the end of the day. I mean, I I just don't think the middle is turned off necessarily as much as the base is enthused, quite frankly. And it's a political calculation that both parties make. Yeah, I, I, I agree that nobody's losing an election because of the content of their vote, which side they came down on. I think it is a, a little bit of a turnout issue. And I, I, I think it's likely to cut both ways. I, I think we, we may have a bigger turnout in the midterms because of these hearings, although the midterms remain seven months away and that is an eternity. <laughs> Look, look where we were a month ago in the world. So it's just very hard, hard to know which way it'll go. But uh, Caitlin, let me ask the moderator a question, if I may. Uh, how many Republican votes? Uh, we're we're going to get more than we're going to get at least one, right? <laughs> Well, that's a great question, Mark. I've been thinking about this this week and and not to play the contrarian view here, but for a minute, I agree with everything you all have said, but I would like to say, you know, compared to the last two Justice Kavanaugh confirmation hearings and Amy Coney Barrett confirmation hearings, yes, it's been a very bad precedent, but it's, yes, we had Ted Cruz, Josh Josh Hawley, Marsha Blackburn, Lindsey Graham was clearly having a rough week this week. Um, but other than that, I think it was a very respectful, very well done. She she was very poised, handled herself well under pressure. And I think you're probably going to get at least one or two Republicans that vote in support for her. Maybe one. I I don't know. I, I know that there are there's a lot of frustration. I think, hear me out for a minute. Lindsey Graham made some good points this week about how she might not consider herself progressive, but all of the progressive groups considered her the most progressive and pushed out all of the other nominees, including the South Carolina judge that was a lot more, you know, a more moderate voice that would have picked up more Republican and Democratic support that Clyburn and Lindsey Graham supported. So these points needed to be made. They were made. By day three, we were beating a dead horse a bit. Uh, Totally agree. Got a little, you know, got a little nasty. But some of these questions were legitimate. And I think that, you know, compared to what Kavanaugh went through and compared to what Amy Coney Barrett went through, it was sort of a cakewalk. But Mark, to your point, look, I think maybe one, maybe, I don't know, watching Collins and Murkowski, they're a little, I think there's a frustration there too, that 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 some of the other folks that might've picked up more support weren't, um, weren't chosen. But at the end of the day, it doesn't matter. She's going to get the votes. She's going to be confirmed and she's going to join the court. Yeah. I have to say, though, that I'm not disagreeing factually with your recitation of the selection process. We all know uh, what lobbying went on by which groups. But that's exactly the problem with the confirmation hearings. The fact 
that it was relevant to the confirmation hearings, which groups lobbied for which candidate with the president is what's wrong with the process at this point, because the question is not where a nominee falls on the political spectrum. The question is her qualifications. And it is, it, it, it's, it, I know Tristan agrees and then some with me on this. It's just, how do you argue that this woman is not qualified to sit on the Supreme Court? That they, it, it's incomprehensible to me that that's where we are with Supreme Court nominations. And I'm not naive. The Supreme Court has always been a political institution. It always follows the election returns. We all know that. But we somehow manage for most, for most of the first 200 plus years to at least pretend that it was above the fray. The pretense is just gone, just gone. You know, the interesting part about this is um, I was having a conversation with a friend, Republican friend, and, you know, I made the comment that we've been here before. It seems like every single black justice, including Clarence Thomas, has had a problem. Um, and he jumped into, well, Thurgood Marshall got through with 69 votes. Yeah, but 20 members didn't vote at all. <laughs> and so you, you have, the, we've always had this conversation in, in this particular realm. And it's, it, I think from that point to now, the Supreme Court has gotten more political. And I, unfortunately, have taken offense through this whole entire process of how she's going to be an activist justice. I wish somebody would tell me what the hell that means. Is I heard this all week long, like activist justice, nothing in her cases, in looking at all of her cases, all 600 of them, tells me that she's going to be somehow an activist justice. Now, she cried because talking about her family members, talking about, she's very emotional. I get that. Hillary Clinton took, they, they took a hit in votes because she cried. She lost the, the 2008 primary because she cried. So I think, I, I just don't understand what the meaning of activist justice is just because she's passionate about all of her cases and looks at them in a you know very clear-eyed, one-by-one basis. And Lindsey Graham took offense to, you know, you did this with, with, with this standard of, of, of child pornography and this, the same standards that any other justice did across the country. So if we're going to look at her record, compare her to everybody else and don't compare her as an individual person. She's a justice. She's a judge right now who's trying to be a justice, but compare her to the greater population of the judiciary and they're doing the exact same thing. Don't make a separate lane for her just because you don't like her to be a, li a liberal nominee. That's my only issue for this week. You're fighting the Ill illogical with the logical. The, the bottom line here is that the phrase activist justice is a trigger word for every conservative in this country. And so it's just like saying liberal. The word liberal is a trigger word. Republicans use it over and over again. Republican media uses it over and over again. Activist justice is the Republican side's trigger word for, oh, they're a Democrat. And they're going to change the Constitution from the bench instead of being a, a in, interpret the Constitution instead of being a literal reader of the Constitution. That's that's all it is. That's all it is. It's in my my, 
My definition, I may be going down a rabbit hole here, Caitlin, you got to moderate, but my definition of an activist justice is the five justice majority in Bush v. Gore. If you want to know what an activist justice is, Caitlin, pound the gavel. gavel I, me down. I, appreciate, I appreciate the definition. I will say the last thing I will say, I thank Ted Cruz. I, re- I really thank Ted Cruz for this week, because as most people know, I am a very moderate Democrat. I am I I have a problems with abortion while while as I don't believe the government should regulate it a woman's body. I personally have a belief that don't believe him. So again, I'm a moderate damn physical. You know, I don't believe I want a balanced budget. All those things. I consider myself to be on the line. This week, what Ted Cruz did was prove to me that I could never be a Republican. He actually proved that I could never qualify to register as a Republican. All the books that he pulled out are on my daughter's bookshelf. I said, wow, okay. Now I believe that if you have a problem with it on the side, I could never, as this black guy, never be a Republican. But, you know, Tristan, you make it sound like Republicans want Ted Cruz. Right. (laughs) (laughs) Well, guys, kind of closing out this segment, look, here's what I will say. Yes. The confirmation hearing process has become a little bit of a circus in the past, you know, we'll give it a decade, but it's certainly in the past handful of years. However, I do think it is wonderful to see that generally the court functions well as a collegial body. They, you know, it, it is still the high court of our land. It still works. Mark Meyer may not disagree, but it still works well. They work well together. You know, it's, it's, yes, we go through these confirmation hearings and things get a little too in the mud sometimes. But at the end of the day, like I said, she's going to be concerned, con- confirmed. It's a historic pick. A lot of young women in America are thrilled to see this. And every, you know, a lo- it's, it's historical. So we're, we're glad to see that happen, and uh, more more on that next week, I think. It's, but but it's but it's unlike you know the current justice of the Supreme Court, where his wife is actually an insurrectionist. But you know it's a little, <laughs> a little bit different. But then that, Kristen, so I'm glad her husband, who is just holding her mug and holding her books in the most kind way, is not somebody who supports January six insurrections. We're, we're digging we're digging into it. Yeah, um, Kristen, that, you have the floor. Keep going. We're talking about Jenny Thomas, who's Clarence Thomas's wife, who clearly, <laughs> according to the long text chains, I just want to know who screenshot that. Um, long text chain was supporting the January 6th, which we already knew she had some form of you know involvement with it but clearly has supported the overturning of an election when your husband is an associate justice of the Supreme Court. Some may say there's no correlation to that. I say as a Christian, the Bible says, be not unequally yoked when you marry somebody. So therefore they're equally yoked in the conversation. I do believe that that's problematic for Justice Clarence Thomas. That's just my opinion. Well, I, I want to be very clear before I uh, get to my point that I know that Caitlin and Towner and many, many, many Republicans do not want to live in the political world we live in where the sitting president 
of the United States unconstitutionally, unlawfully, and violently tried to overturn the election. So Justice Thomas and his wife are just part of this world that we have. I keep using the verb descend. We have descended into a world that, that many of us, including all four on this screen, do not want to be in. It's exactly right. That's exactly right. And, you know, she should be taken to, to account for, for anything she's done. And if Justice Thomas was involved, I Tristan, I'm not ready to go there biblically uh, in, in yoking. I think that's uh, a little sexist, two. personally, but we'll get to that. <laughs> no, I think, both sides, actually. It's not sexist. It's yeah. the same thing as it relates to, uh, the, uh, to Judge Jackson. If her husband does something, I would yoke them the same exact way. It's no different. There you go. I, I've i learned a new term that I'm going to use frequently from here on out with my <laughs> wife that she is now officially yoked to me. Um, and you are yoked to her. Actually. Yes. <laughs> well, I, I'm going to ignore the backside of that. <laughs> now that's sexist. <laughs> so let me jump in here for a minute. I've read the text messages and look, she's an activist. She's always been an activist. They were texts between two friends, herself and Mark Meadows. She has her own opinions. Were they a little Tucker Carlson, Fox News infused? Did they seem like something my aunt might have been texting one of her good friends? Maybe. And I don't understand how that there's no proof. There's no, you know, um, there's no indication that Justice Thomas was in any way, you know, feeling the same way or involved in trying to help overturn this election. And they were private text messages between two friends. Look, I'm the only one on this call that doesn't have a spouse. Save that conversation for another day. But do you all want to be held accountable for your wife's private text messages with friends? I mean, is that fair game? I don't if think I wanted so. to sit on the Supreme Court of the United States of America, my answer is yes. Yes, absolutely. Yes. Not if I'm just a suburban guy going to the grocery store, maybe. But if you want to be an associate justice of the Supreme Court of the United States of America, my, my answer is yes. I would hope, I would hope that, you know, as a good husband, whenever you make life decisions, such as being on the Supreme Court of the United States, you pray about it and have conversations with your spouse. Uh, I would hope that, you know, in engaging in any political, in, you know, involvement or anything in service, you're having these conversations at home because it is impactful and it, quite frankly, it's for your mental health um, to not deal with so many things, but deal with home at the same time. So unless they're you know, sleeping in separate beds or in separate houses or somehow are not together anymore, you know, I would, yes, absolutely hold me accountable because me and my wife have conversations all the time. I, I look at this from two fronts. The first is, doesn't actually matter because he made it through a horrible confirmation process and so now he can do whatever the heck he wants to do, because that's the, essentially the bar we've established for the Supreme Court, is you have to take anywhere between a week and six weeks of absolute misery and pain where we destroy your family in every way we possibly can. And then we're all, you know, you're great. You're fine for the rest of your life. Lifetime appointment. You're good to go. And so that's number one. Well, number two. Subject to impeachment. Subject to impeachment, which is subject to Congress actually getting their act together and impeaching somebody, which is not something that happens very often, um, and especially in, uh, on judges. And it usually involves bribery and a whole long, lengthy investigation process by the FBI and things along those lines. But even then, 
you know, Alcee Hastings, who is one of my favorite, may he rest in peace, was one of my favorite members of Congress, was an impeached judge who then went on to get elected and serve as a member of the House of Representatives, very honorably, by the way, uh, for a long time. Uh, so it's it's even then you're you're not necessarily, you know, ejecting somebody from society by any stretch of the imagination. Um, I also look at this from the other side because I've been a chief of staff for members of Congress. You know, we've we've been senior. All of us in some way, shape or form has has been in a senior position where you have to communicate to activists and you don't want to tell them they're crazy. But you also don't want to dissuade them from raising money and being activists in the community and things like that. And I read uh, the, the interesting thing for me is I read Mark Meadows side of those text messages and I keep thinking, man, I wish they didn't have my phone because at some point over the course of my entire congressional career, crazy activists have texted me because they have my cell phone and not the bosses, not the members of con- member of Congress's cell phone. Thank God. And I've said, yeah, keep up the fight. Let's go. You know, blah, blah, blah. You know, and, and it's not related to anything for the insurrection, by the way. This is like a this is like a, a social campaign or something along those lines. But. But, you know, I, I read in Mark Meadows responses, basically the exact same thing that every single chief of staff on Capitol Hill for a Republican or a Democrat basically answers on their cell phone on a day to day basis. Like, yeah, go raw. You know, it's uh, it was interesting to read it from the other side, I thought, too. Look, you there's know, no think, proof um, that Jenny Thomas has ever influenced or has tried to influence her husband or his rulings. These were private text messages between friends. I hear you both, but I just, I think that, you know, it's a little bit of a not fair game in my view. You know the good thing, you know the good thing about history, his, and I'm a history one, um, the good thing about history is that it's always going to set a precedent. Um, and we, we will be here again. And ultimately, the precedent that is set is something that's going to go forward. And I fear that we're going to go down a rabbit hole. Um, and it's going to be a situation and the president is going to be, well, Jenny Thomas, who's married to Clarence Thomas, uh, there's no correlation. So therefore we can't hold him accountable. And so I, I think we just, it, again, president is everything. Say again? Hold him accountable for what? There was no action that he took that he should be held accountable. For. That's the problem is that we don't know that. And so I think the, the issue is that we, we there, there, I think there needs to be an investigation personally. Um, you know, others may say, oh, there's no, we just don't know. There's a lot of unanswered questions. And the more we continue to dig and the more we continue to find out, the, the onion continues to peel back forward and forward. So I think, again, should just find out what it is. And if we don't, then we don't. But again, understand the precedent has been set going forward and we, we have to be okay with that. Well, does this does this indicate that the process is in some way working? I mean, this this is an investigation. The only reason we know about this is because of the January 6th commission, because it's come has been subpoenaed. I personally, I don't know that we should be reading it. I'd like to have them not be leaking things into the press constantly. I think the investigation should happen as any investigation should, which is not in the public eye, because then we end up having week to week conversations about some leaked document that came out of Congress. Which is which is a problem for me, but at the same point in time, that went out the door with Benghazi. That completely well, I, out the door. The back, the back behind the Benghazi took that completely out the window. Look, I totally agree with but you. There, but that doesn't mean that the original standard shouldn't be a standard. There, there are two different things going on here. I, I think, if I may, one is 
her conduct, which maybe should, maybe shouldn't be the subject of a, an investigation to determine whether she broke the law. That's about her and her conduct. My interest, candidly, is much more on his side, where I think he should have recused himself from any election-related cases because of his wife's involvement. I'm not saying he should be impeached. That's well, maybe he didn't know, Mark. Maybe now that he knows, he will. Fair, fair enough. Fair enough. We'll see. That is it. That you is read all of your wife's text messages? All right. That's so, a let's horrible husband. That's a horrible... I try, I try <laughs> to, but I can't keep up. I can't keep up the, with the volume. <laughs> the good thing is that the Supreme Court as a whole totally uh, recused themselves from anything in the election. They didn't rule on anything exactly. that right. had to do with the election. Once, so once they, again, they it, it, it was not Bush v. Gore. The Supreme Court did not pick the president. And and that was a, a great American moment, candidly. That that was, as, as Caitlin was saying a moment ago, that was the Supreme Court actually reading the Constitution and and staying above the political fray. All right, guys, let's pivot for a minute. So uh, House Republicans down in Florida working on their policy agenda uh, for the new year. Towner, why don't you tell us a little bit about what we learned and, you know, what House Republicans have been doing to start working on, you know, what assuming things, you know, happen in November like we anticipate, they're starting to work on different policies and they're ready to hit the ground running on day one. Um, why don't you tell us a little bit about what what we learned this week out of some of these, the, the retreat down in Florida? Well, I, the first two things we learned are Republicans are are 100% confident that they're just going to walk into the House of Representatives as the majority party. Uh, number two, uh, McCarthy is 100% positive that he will be the Speaker of the House. And so uh, they've established those baselines somehow in their minds. Uh, but obviously, we still have a ways until the election. But really, what they're what we're seeing is um, the need for a party who may win the majority to start saying what they're for. Republicans haven't had to do that through the entire process. And so, um, you know, they went through a list of, of pieces of legislation they'd like to have up uh, in energy independence. Uh, legislation, parents' rights, uh, parents' bill of rights, um, secure border legislation, a anti-fentanyl uh, piece of legislation. Um, you know, interesting for me, I thought, you know, was a couple of different things that came out. Uh, the first was obviously they're going to remove the proxy voting on day one. The second is- Thank God. Yeah, that- uh, there was, and, and we've been talking about this a little bit, but there was maybe a uh, uh, feeling that they would keep the January 6th commission uh, and turn it into a tool of their use to look at things about Nancy Pelosi and other, I, I don't know, I don't know what they're planning to look into, but um, but anyway, it's interesting. Once you open up these select committees, they become sort of zombie subpoenaing uh, bodies, unfortunately. So anyway, the bottom line is, I don't think we're going to see a contract with America by any stretch of the imagination leading up to election day. But I think what we will see uh, is starting to come out with a, more information on what Republicans are going to put uh, at the top of their agenda moving forward. Caitlin, take a quick minute and tell us uh about why you were so exuberant when Towner said that proxy voting was going to be uh, ended. 
Well, look, I think what we're seeing is that it's time to reopen the Capitol complex. It's time for members of Congress to show up in their offices, to show up at committee hearings in person, not on Zoom in a t-shirt and shorts. It's time for them to do their jobs. The American people elected them to be in Washington when Congress is in session, to do committee work, and to vote. And I think proxy voting has become, I understand the, the need for it at the height of the pandemic, but we are long past the point of the allowance of proxy voting. I personally think it's unconstitutional outside of a major emergency situation. And it's very frustrating to me that Speaker Pelosi has not removed proxy voting and got back to regular order, regular voting in Congress. I'll add one more thing. You know, we had clients in town last week the first time in a big week where we had some CEOs in town and the process of trying to get in and meet, have your constituents get in and meet with members of Congress and their staff, which was the heart of what we do and the heart of, of how our democracy works. It's infuriating that some offices will meet with you in person, some will not, but you can write a pack check and go to dinner with that member of Congress or that Senator. And it's really frustrating to see how broken the process of even getting in and out of these House and Senate office buildings are right now. And it's high time we get back to some normalcy on the Hill. 100% agreement. Look at that. Should we end there? Yeah, Yeah, we should pause and note that this may be a first and a last, but 100% agreement. There was a hearing this past week in the House Rules Committee talking about uh, the process of proxy voting and and whether they want to have some rules on it going forward. Um, It was an excellent hearing. It was a, a got deep into the weeds of the constitutional questions. Um, you know, some of the most ardent uh, conservative, uh, some would call them Freedom Caucus or insurrectionists were up there quoting Constitution. Uh, Jamie Raskin was doing the same. And it was a it was an example of how members of Congress can actually have a debate on the merits of something, on the constitutionality of something, uh, and and very respectfully. It was a wonderful conversation. Uh, I don't know that anything was necessarily decided. Um, I think, you know, a lot of members of Congress on both sides of the aisle uh, feel like some accommodations for COVID still, if you actively have COVID, are are absolutely necessary because uh, there's members of Congress, for example, that get pulled off of the House floor because they had a positive test. They're in D.C. They are here, even if you read the Constitution strictly to say you have to be seated, you have to be, you know, all the things that are place-based, you can say that that person is here. Uh, They have made the effort to come uh, and represent their constituents, um, but cannot because the House of Representatives is telling them they cannot, not because of anything else uh, that would prevent them from being there. So I think there are some questions that that need to be answered about sort of where the applicability of, of this is. The problem I think that that Caitlin and Mark both agree on, and and I do as well, uh, is the proxy voting system was set up uh, specifically for the purposes of dealing with COVID. So, you know, if you have COVID, if you have to quarantine because of close contacts, if you have a child that has COVID and you have to stay and take care of that child as a member of Congress, members of Congress have used then the proxy voting for everything that isn't related to to COVID. There's members of Congress that have been doing committee hearings from a boat. There are members of Congress who literally haven't been in D.C. for two years 
and and have no plans to come back as long as proxy voting uh, is in place. The problem with that is each member of Congress, for every vote you cast on the House floor on a proxy basis, has to attest that that is due to COVID-19 in some way, shape, or form. That's not the legalese, but that's the gist of the whole thing. And for the vast majority of the times that folks have been voting by proxy, it has not been as a result of COVID-19. And so I would argue that anybody, uh, that there are a great number of members of Congress who have who are in violation of, of, frankly, the law of the land, which is they have to make this attestation that their proxy voting is related to COVID-19. If we want to have a conversation about opening up proxy voting writ large, I think, you know, Republicans and Democrats are going to feel slightly different about that. Um, you know, certainly there was there was a testimony from Linda Sanchez, um, a California Democrat, who I like very much uh, in the committee, talking about the fact that, you know, she had a child and she couldn't come to D.C. That wasn't that she didn't want to represent her constituents and miss those. She didn't want to miss those votes, but she was in the hospital having a child. So why can't she proxy vote, you know, from from her hospital bed uh, while she was while she was in the hospital for a couple of nights with a C-section? Legitimate questions that I think the House needs to ask. The House has been very bad historically about trying to figure out um, the the metrics by which uh, continuity of Congress exists. So be it post 9-11 and a terrorist attack or now dealing with health situation of COVID, how does the House continue to function under a quorum and as a body uh, in Washington, D.C.? And, and we may never get the answers to those questions, but at least the members are talking about it, which I think is positive. Sorry for my- no, Thank you, quick. Professor French. We, <laughs> insightful as always. No, that was great. You know, I, um, I'm gonna have to be the one. Um, we're not 100% in agreement. Although I do agree we should, we should remove proxy voting. Uh, as a blanket process. I think it's, it's been far too long. Um, personally, for our work that we do, it, it would be helpful if members of Congress are actually in D.C. Um, for clients to meet with. I, I do think, as as, as counterindicated, uh, as a father uh, of two young girls, I'm always thinking in my head of how can I protect them, and especially as one who's under the age of two. And so I... I, I, I I stop short of, of saying we need to remove it altogether. I do think that if you are, to Tyler's point, if you test positive and you're in D.C. Or, or if you test positive in your home and you can't make it, then you need to you know, attest to that, prove that and say, I'm going to proxy vote for the next couple of days or, or you know, work virtually. We've proved that we can do that. But I think the um, no limits to the process has been a problem and people have taken it way too far and we need to get back to normal um, with the understanding of being flexible uh, for folks here or there who can be there. But I, I at least think we should at least have quorum in the room uh, when it comes to members of Congress and those who are who are voting. Well, yeah, guys. I, mean, I was, oh, Caitlin, one oh, more thing. Nope. I was just going to say, yeah. I'm going to add the politics to this whole thing because Democrats have had between a three and five seat majority through the course of this Congress. And, you know, more than three or five members is usually out with some sort of COVID, you know, issue, either either, you know, a proximity thing and they have to quarantine or whatever else. Nancy Pelosi, Speaker Pelosi, has used proxy voting to the extent that she needs to have her members always there. And she now has her members always there. One of the great things, the interesting things for me about Congress is who's showing up and voting. 
and you know, there's there's a drive always from both sides of the aisle to make sure your members are there uh, to vote on important issues. Uh, with proxy voting, 100% of the Democrats vote and 100% of the Republicans vote. And as a result, the Democrats will always win in the House of Representatives. There isn't a opportunity for the minority to have uh, a situation where some of the Democrats aren't there and they can potentially win a vote or come close to winning a vote. And Speaker Pelosi doesn't have a 20, 30, 40 seat majority that she can play around with where folks can be out due to COVID and not have a proxy voting system. Flip that, Republicans, if they come into the majority next Congress, may also have a single you know, digit majority. And so the question is going to be, Republicans have laid this fine line. We're not doing proxy, period, the end, end of story. If there's a four or five seat majority, I think you might have some folks starting to say, Hey, you know, look, you know, we got to have some quasi proxy sort of thing. And that's so from both sides of the aisle, that is where my problem exists. When you take something that is done for health mitigation reasons in a once in a hundred year pandemic and you turn it into eh, it's a little bit easier to control the House of Representatives if members aren't showing up and I just get their proxy votes. That's when it becomes an institutional question and not uh, a health or pandemic related question. I just want to throw that in. Sorry. Remove proxy voting no matter who the speaker is. Okay. There you go. Get back to work. <laughs> well, just a, a real quick note as the senior fundraiser on this screen, the, the hypocrisy of not showing up at the Capitol and then taking your donors out to dinner is is not helping the standing of Congress with the American people. <laughs> here, here. Totally agree. Completely here. agree there. Well, guys, on that note, it's been a spirited discussion today. Um, a lot to cover. Thanks for joining us. I think uh, any any final thoughts for the week as we you know head into spring? It's getting a little warmer. The, the cherry blossoms are in bloom. Mark? It wouldn't wouldn't be a Beltway briefing if I didn't say go Nova and and go Duke. See you you in New Orleans, Towner. See you in New Orleans, Mark. Our our, uh, condolences to Mr. Schweitzer. And Tristan, sorry, who who was in the tournament as well with Norfolk State. (laughs) For five minutes. Uh, but no, my 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 parting words is uh, two parts. Um, one, I do want to offer uh, my sincere condolences to uh, to the dean of the house's family, Don Young, uh, who passed away. He was, you know, although on the other side of the aisle, he was always a straight shooter um, and always found a way to keep the institution together. And I think losing him um, at this point in our, pol- in our political dynamics is is telling to where we are um, and we need him now more than ever. So my condolences to uh, to the young family and, and, and the state of Alaska who he served so, so faithfully for decades. Um, and the second thing is, is, you know, we, we've had a lot of conversations um, about politics. We've had a lot of conversations about um, the, the, the issues of Washington and the, the back and forth of politics. You know, to our clients uh, who we work with, you know, every single day, there is stuff getting done. And we, we can't reiterate that 
as enough. We're getting things done. We're getting bills passed, despite what the noise is, despite what you may have feel feel personally. I get emotional sometimes. I take things personal sometimes. By the end of the day, there are folks who can have two separate lanes um, and get bills accomplished. And we're we're going to finish this Congress strong. And whoever's in the majority come come January, uh, President Biden still still going to be president. And so we have to figure out how to find some common ground. And that's what we're here for. That's what we're here to do. We're here to make sure that we are pushing client agendas before not just the, the House and Senate, but also the White House. And we look forward to doing it no matter what happens come November. And much love to both my Republican colleagues. As well. there you go. This, this podcast would be really dang boring if it was just a single party uh, Cozen O'Connor public strategies. Very true. <laughs> well, thanks everyone on that on that positive note. We will end there and uh, we'll welcome Howard back next week in the moderator chair. Thanks everybody. You've been listening to The Beltway Briefing, a podcast from Cozen O'Connor Public Strategies with perspectives from both sides of the aisle. Please subscribe to our podcast so our episodes are automatically sent to you when they are released. The Beltway Briefing podcast has been produced by Hometown Podcasts and Audio, Washington, D.C.